scary skeletons and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul and seal your doom tonight. Spooky, scary skeletons speak with such a screech. You'll shake and shudder in surprise when you hear these zombies shriek. Okay. I mean, you could do that if you want. If you want, you could do that. But I'm not, you know, I'm not going to. Oh, I had a list. I have a list of things I need to talk about. All right, number one on the list. Uh, okay, let's start this way. Yeah, this is 81. I'm here with Tenron Otrin. This is lots of pasta. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we talk about the horror and the stuffs, and, uh, we smoked a blunt, so, I mean, I hope you smoke a blunt, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, just roll it up, just roll it up, kick back, you unless know, lazy Sunday, <laughs> unless you're lazy like, Sunday on a Tuesday, well, unless you're like me who puts it on his headphones while at work, <laughs> listens to it while he works. I wouldn't smoke a blunt at work, but sure, that's sure. just me. <laughs> sure, sure, I would. So uh, first, I got to talk about some horror things that's that I've been watching. Okay, so number one, uh, I watched a movie called The Monster Project last week with uh, Scotch McGee. We talk about it at the end of his episode, and then we, you know, we stopped recording and we went and watched it. Uh, literally one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. And, um, it has, like, a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that just baffles me. And, um, the audience rating was, like, 40%, which I think is more accurate. Let me explain it this way. The Monster Project is a group of friends has the brilliant idea of documenting them collecting both a werewolf, a demon, and a vampire hmm. to do interviews in a random house in, like, Sao Cow. Simultaneous? Like, all in the same house, all in different rooms. At the same time. For right. some fucking reason. And it just happens to be a fucking full moon, and it happens to be wow. at, like, they have to invite the vampire. Of course all of these monsters turn out to be actual monsters, but let me explain it to you this way, folks. We, we, Scutch and I laughed about this for, for you know, the entire 80-some minute runtime. Each of the monsters was a Snapchat filter. <laughs> you know how... You know how it, it, like, stretches a face and it's, like, graphics on top of your face and it's just someone just, like, you know, opening their mouth and then, you know, odd, obviously... The graphics company was like, okay, so he got a, the dog face filter, and let's stretch that mouth really wide. There, That's your werewolf, and it's a guy in a furry suit, but, like, his face is, like, literally a s shitty CGI Snapchat filter. Same thing with the vampire chick. When, when she gets too close, her face is just, like, a giant fucking screaming, sharp-toothed Snapchat filter. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that's how bad these graphics are, and that's how unsurprising, how terrible that movie was. I watched a movie called Black Coat's Daughter with Gestalt at some point, and I was too high, and I think I either fell asleep or stopped paying attention. And I felt really bad because he was super passionate 
about that movie, but it was too slow of a burn. Well, to, to appease him, because we've been reading a, a series together, to appease him, uh, I rewatched it. And it is a slow burn horror with tons of twists. And uh, it convinces you one character's a psycho, and then it throws a carpet at you saying the other character is probably more psycho. And it's just, it's very Hitchcock, it's very slow and, and experimental and, and quiet. You know, it's super quiet, but still pretty cool. Um, he fucking, Gestalt fucking loved that movie. I, I just thought it was alright. The same person who made that movie made um, The uh, Killing of the Sacred Deer that came out recently apparently that was really good too so people are like really into this guy uh anyway <laughs> butcher's block started last week i think i brought it up in another episode but butcher's block is fucking awesome that's channel zero's third season they uh they're doing the search and rescue stories it's super fucking cool they're kind of doing a hellraiser uh it's very lovecraftian cosmic horror kind of thing going on and it's really fucking cool you know the stairs in the woods it's just super cool to finally see it on a on a screen um we we finished reading that series with uh episode 65 so we started that series in episode four me and Django, and we finally finally finished it in 65 so watch watch all those Django episodes or listen to all them Django episodes if you want to understand the uh, search and rescue stories with butcher's block there are a lot of little connections that they wink at. And then the the last two things I watched were Yellow Brick Road, which I was told to watch this uh, by a guy on uh, Reddit in, in a horror discussion board. Someone told me to watch Yellow Brick Road, and it was fucking garbage. So... <laughs> It has such a good premise, and it falls apart, like, halfway through, much like, um, The House Is That October Built. If you've seen any of these, feel free to step in. Most of them are on, like, Netflix or... I don't have them. Okay. It's okay. They're, they're relatively indie, indie horror. Yellow Brick Road was a very small, independent, uh, project. And it shows. The CGI is just terrible, and the story falls apart. It's, it's essentially a Roanoke story, like... Uh, a fictional town in New Hampshire goes mis uh, goes missing in the 40s, and um, a crew in the 80s decides to investigate it, and these are the found tapes of their recording. But, like, they mix it with real-life movie, too. You know, they, um... It's filmed like a movie, but there are segments where it's, like, behind the camera, watching them talk to each other. It's a very interesting attempt, but it falls apart because the acting is terrible and the story just decides to make up its own shit as it goes along. It's really weird. It's like Blair Witch Project, but terrible. The last thing I wanted to talk about was a Netflix original that just came out. It's called The Ritual. It was fucking awesome. I was texting uh, Disco Dracula while I was watching it. And uh, we talked about, apparently, the uh, the book has a couple differences with the film adaptation on Netflix. But uh, I'll, I'll just wink that. I'll just keep that there for the people that understand that. Read, read what the book ending is, and then 
watch the Netflix movie. I don't want to spoil it. You'd be totally into it. It's fucking cool. Speaking of Netflix movies that just came out, what do yeah. you think of Cloverfield? Oh, yeah. I don't... I think I talked about it a little bit in 79 with my buddy Gnarly Charlie. We had watched it the night it came out. We got back from the Super Bowl and we sat down did they, and we watched it. Did they it. pull an Alien Covenant, though? Kind of, yeah. They kind of did. The explanation I was told... The explanation I have researched is that Paradox is the incident for why the Cloverfield movies will happen. Evidently, it is a Twilight Zone series, and Paradox is the origin point. Yeah. It shatters dimensions and introduces unearthly monsters and aliens and all different things like... There's another one, uh, the fourth Cloverfield film, uh, codenamed Overlord, is coming out in October this year, and uh, apparently that one is supposed to take place during World War II, and it's supposed to be nuts. You know, it's going to be Cloverfield World War II, and that sounds fucking crazy. But we saw, we saw like a future sci-fi, you know? They go through the things that happened in Cloverfield but in the future, so that shows that their universe is different from our universe, and what they did in their universe had shattered the effects of what Cloverfield, the original Cloverfield, was to us, Mm -hmm. which is, like, 2008, New York, and it's caught on that handycam. It is interesting that they bring out the issue of, you know, renewable energy and how we'll be, you know, inevitably struggling for energy. Sure. Maybe to even that point where you're getting constant power outages in the city and, you know, you, the government is now finally focusing their research efforts on new energy sources and it's just too little too late. Or they do something that causes something catastrophic. I love that. Paradox. I love that about... But that's not just paradox, though. That's, that's pretty much the plot of all of the Cloverfield movies. Cloverfield 1 in its bare bones, like at, if, if you played the ARG or if you even understand the ARG's story, Cloverfield, the first movie, is a corporation is trying to find a way to mine a mineral from the bottom of the ocean to be a renewable resource, to be like a new fossil fuel. And it's like a, a sugary byproduct that we end up finding out monsters in the fucking deep ocean feed off of it, and they don't like that we're fucking with it, so they decide to destroy the oil rig that was mining that shit. Little do we know, an offspring of this giant fucking race is coming right towards New York, and it's about to fuck everything up. And that's the first Cloverfield movie. Interesting. Cloverfield Lane is the company that hired and owned the oil rig is also responsible for sending satellites. Actually, that's how the baby Clovey in the Cloverfield movie finds New York. He gets woken up by debris that falls into the ocean and it kind of like a baby, a toddler being tempted by bright, shiny objects finds New York from that splash. And um, 
gets attracted to and gets attracted to coming to the coming yeah. to see what what's up what's up above the and ocean. And that being the baby makes the monster at the end of Paradox the mother mama. That thing was huge. So that's saying that the events of Paradox happened later in that timeline because when they pressed that button sure. the, the events just shifted. So they are going through something completely different with a completely different scale of monsters. Oh, so what you're saying is that Cloverfield and Cloverfield Lane they is are happening different in a different universes. universe than Paradox. No, they're all different universes. It's the, it's Cloverfield the, Lane is a different universe. Cloverfield is a different universe than Cloverfield Paradox. They're all different universes, but relatively similar shit is going to happen in each of them. Overfield, Overlord that's coming out is also going to be a new a new universe, except we're seeing what their World War II was with dealing with some kind of supernatural element. Oh. Cloverfield Lane, that story, ARG, um, if you dig that up and figure out Cloverfield Lane, is John Goodman's character works for the company that sends up the satellites, and he gets fired for being a creep but he was really responsible for one of the best satellites that gets sent out into space, and it's this, and it's probably the same company that built the spaceship in Paradox. So anyway, um, I believe it is. If you uh, if you saw the slusho bobblehead, I think that's the point. Is that Tagruato is um, responsible for Paradox as well? So um, what that one is is they're sending it out to space. I think to collect energy and like beam it to Earth, almost mm. like a solar sail kind mm. of thing, and that apparently goes dark, mm. and an alien race takes it, and using energy and its power and their technology finds Earth and tries to take over the planet, and that's Cloverfield Lane. They mm. use their own. You know, they are their own race of biomechanical aliens. Yeah, and they just they just want our planet. Mm -hmm. So all of the um all of the Cloverfield movies are all connected, but they are different interpretations of the same story. Shit gets fucked because humans because humans. Mm-hmm. Mostly because of that company, though. It's fun. I liked Paradox. I didn't hate it. A lot. It's getting a lot of hate. I don't really see the point. I think we should welcome more stuff. If, if it mimics Black Mirror, if it mimics Twilight Zone, if it's trying to do something original and, and kind of new in its own kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I have no problem with it. Like, let it happen. If, if I don't know if you know this, but both Cloverfield Lane and, Clover, and, and Cloverfield Paradox were not Cloverfield movies. They were other original short films with different endings and different scripts huh. that got chopped and replaced with segments I didn't know that. to then deal with the Cloverfield universe as like a last-minute studio bump bait yeah. and switch. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Cloverfield Lane was originally the seller, and it was just a bare... A Bare bones story about a girl getting kidnapped by a guy who believes 
it's the end of the world above ground, and she gets more evidence that it is, but she eventually wants to find out for herself, so she gets out, and the movie just ends. It didn't review well with audiences, or it wasn't going to sell too much, and the studio that owned it was in conversation with J.J. Abrams, and J.J. kind of approached the director and said, hey, how about, you, how about we give you X money, and you go out, and you just... You film an ending segment with a budget, like, whatever you want to do, but, you know, let us have a little bit of influence. The guy was like, okay, I'd love to do Aliens. I would love the world to actually be ending because of Aliens, and J.J. was like, okay, we can do that. And you got Cloverfield Lane. Paradox is about people trying to harness energy in space because the Earth is dying, and they have a huge, cool ship that when they press the button, they end up in different dimensions fucking with things. Yeah, they have a, part of, a particle collider. Literally delete all of the Earth stuff about the husband and the ending with Clovey, and you have what Paradox was. Yeah. The movie ends with the mom sending the video to the Earth before clicking the button and going back to her own dimension. That's it. That's the end. Nothing different happens. But the studio that owns Cloverfield was just like, hey, this movie could be better, and, you know, you could link it to Cloverfield if you want, and maybe maybe the director didn't have a decision, maybe, maybe they did it to save the film, who fucking knows, dude? But you could tell, you could tell the budget difference between the Clovey at the end and the rest of the movie, and you could tell... The Earth stuff is just kind of thrown in there because yeah. it just looks different. Yeah, it's filmed differently. You just and and at, and at some point it's not thematically accurate. It just gets off, gets off pace, gets off topic. So yeah, I'm not sure if that destroys any of that for you, but I love Cloverfield, so I I don't I don't really give a shit. No, I thought Paradox good. Cool, I enjoyed it. Cool, yeah. Um, The Ritual on Netflix, super fucking cool though. Um, I just feel the need to um, repeat that because, uh, I don't know, I think it's getting good reviews. It got some advertising from last podcast on the left, so and it just came out, so I was like, fuck yeah, okay. If they're vouching for it and they're, you know, they were paid to advertise for it, then fuck yeah, I'll give it a look. And it's fucking awesome. It's like, um, what did I say to Disco? I said it's Blair Witch, like the new one, which I, which again... I don't care if you hated it. I fucking loved it. I thought it was great. Um, the new Blair Witch, the 2016 one, it was like that, but it had a baby with Midnight Meat Train. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about Midnight Meat Train recently. Fucking awesome Lovecraft twist right at the end that you don't see coming out of anywhere. It brings it to a whole new level, but it's a real, it's a real, real straight-laced single-lane narrative that you think is just a hack-and-slash. And, you know, um, the ritual has this kind of twist where it's just like, you just think it's going to be some fuckers in the woods. You just think it's going to be some fucking people doing some stupid people shit. And then it starts to get Blair Witch because you think people are just assholes and evil and pagan cultists and shit. But then it turns out like, no, fucking deity old god monster out of fucking nowhere. The movie's awesome, dude. The movie is so fucking cool. <laughs> Watch it. It's on Netflix. It's fucking great. 
the design of the monster is one of the coolest things I've seen in a long time. The design of it's not I can't even say monster. That's it's inaccurate, but to describe it anymore would just spoil it for mm-hmm. you. And I don't want to spoil it too much. Super cool, super fun, just like Midnight Meat Train. The ritual. The ritual. Now on Netflix. Anyway. Um that's my advertising voice. <laughs> So I'm here with I'm here with Tenron. Oh man. So we finished Whistlers. We did all three parts of Whistlers, you and I. We did Mr. Bears, night nineteen ninety-nine. We did two really good no sleeps. I've had this one for a while. It's not hailed as any of like no sleep's best, but it it does have a lot of recommended followers a lot of hmm. a lot of really good popular opinion okay. so i don't know if it's a monthly winner or anything it might be but um i've had it for a long time and i've just uh i've never had anyone to read it with and i gave you a list i've been trying to be more organized i gave you a list and you were like yeah this this topic sounds interesting to me and um this story is called i regret ever working in the south pole and it's from Reddit No Sleep. Um, I originally had this down with uh, with Django, but I have to ask you, Tenron, like, so what? What is it about this? Before we get into it, because it's it's a it's not going to be terribly long. We're going to get through it real quick. Um, well, I guess what the idea just jumps out at me is uh-huh. the South Pole. I don't know. Recently, I I had heard that sometimes it gets as low as minus like seventy degrees. Fuck yeah. At certain parts, certain times of the year. Fuck yeah. And working, uh, it's all, you know, science work, you know, so obviously you're not dealing with a narrator who's unintelligent, we hope, but maybe they make stupid decisions Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't think an intelligent person would make. So I don't know, I'm, I'm anticipating some those moments where you are seeing the character have to have to make the choice but you know the choice they make you know ends up fucking them in the ass or absolutely maybe it does work out but you're like surprised so off the bat i think the reason i grabbed this is because it's hard for me to not think of two different things number one favorite hp lovecraft story is at the mountains of madness and it is literally about a guy going to Antarctica and he is it's like maybe the 40s or the 50s and he just they get the budget and they sail from Australia and they just fucking go and they go harder and farther than any human has ever known to be able to get deeper into Antarctica because it is so fucking cold and just so fucking hard to get through there. And, like, that's the point in the in the in in our history where we kind of had the ability to start exploring, you know, that area. And what they fucking find, because H.P. Lovecraft is a fucking genius, is an ancient race that got fucked and frozen in the ice. And they are just demonic fucking tentacly monsters and this this fuck up 
of a scientist leads them to this area where, like, the mountains have, like, full cubes on them and shit, and, like, deep ruins that go deep into the mountains, and, um, they wake up all sorts of different ghouls, and they dig up, uh, the remains of, um, of a couple of the OG monsters, (laughs) and when they... When they wake them up, these things are not fucking happy. <laughs> they just, they fucking destroy everything. And, like, nothing fucking survives, dude. It's fucking awesome. And I love that, and I know my expectations are way too high for this story to match anything of that caliber, because it's Lovecraft. But that story inspired Alien. That story inspired uh, what I'm going to bring up, which is... uh who goes there or the thing from the 80s countless other narratives you know like uh the thing is the thing is based on a 1950s movie and teleplay i think who goes there which is about a team in the in the arctics who is just researching just doing you know um science and exploring and uh they find out that the Swiss team over the mountains has gone dark and no one's responding and people are going nuts. So they go to check it out and everyone's dead. And there are weird things that they found in the ice. And, you know, there's there's an alien running around. And it's impersonating humans and it wants to get back to civilization to, like, destroy it. Just super clean cut. And easy to understand. And we read a story, episode 37, I talk about it all the fucking time. Uh, Dogscape. Dogscape is a creepypasta about what would have happened if that dog made it back to a human race. If it had the ability to dead space assimilate with other organisms, it would wipe out the fucking human Mm. race. And that's why Dogscape is such a fun episode. That's with Django Phillips, episode seven, uh, 37. Fucking listen to that shit. So what, what, where do you want this to go? Do you want this to be about, like, aliens? Do you want this to be about just some guy going nuts in the South Pole? Do you, um, where, like, madness? Old school madness? Paranoia? I regret ever working in the South Pole. Well... It's a no sleep, so it, it it's gonna have a uh, kind of. I'm thinking. I'm thinking trope or element. I'm thinking he stereotype. You know, he encounters objects moving through the blizzards. Sure. You know, like um, sure. maybe like Bigfoot or a Yeti kind of size. Mm-hmm. We'll say maybe it's on four legs. Sure. Could be a beast. Sure. Um, could be packs of animals, but you would like, you would like. I don't know if I ever bring up this series. There's a series on uh, the Not Hot but Spicy site called Fifty Foot Ant, and um, <laughs> it's a. It, that's the joke is that it's called Fifty Foot Ant, but the story isn't called a Fifty Foot Ant. That's the metaphor they use. It's like um, something is too big to believe, so it's known as a ghost story. You know, like a. If it if it were true, it would end the human race. But gladly, there are no fifty foot ants. Uh, the story is about a a guard in the seventies gets sent to the northmost point of I want to say Sweden, in between Germany and 
the West Europe. I want to say Sweden or Swiss Alps or something. But he gets sent, you know, World War II was a while ago, but he gets sent to a camp, and outside the camp is an old Nazi uh, bunker that they have to clear out, and uh, rumor has it that everything up there is fucking haunted. I can't ever read it. I, I you know, I, I always say it. I can't read 50 Foot Ant because it's like 300-some pages, and it's all online and it's all free, but it is phenomenal, people. If, if, if anyone wants to put the time to read it, 50 Foot Ant is fucking great. Ghosts, monsters, just fucking anything. Like, that place is fucking evil. Like, that's just the point of the series. And part of me thinks that, like, this could go that way. Good. Or maybe, like, supernatural. That's what I mean. Oh. Super, super fucking natural. I mean ghosts. Yeah. Oh. It, 50 Foot Ant, in its essence, is about evil spirits that have died in in that Nazi experimentation bunker. Oh, I thought you meant, like, physical beings. No, there are physical beings. They inhabit... They inhabit forms. They make people go crazy. Oh. They get inside their heads. But they are very much also a spiritual threat. I guess okay. Very much right. like a Wendigo. Okay. How the spirit can overtake the physical form after so much madness. Yeah. Anyway, that would be fun. Wendigos would be fun. That would be real fun. Oh, that'd be interesting. Maybe they find a tribe of mad people. Um, you want to dive into this shit? Sure. Are no sleep. I regret ever working in the South Pole. I apologize. I'm a fucking idiot. It's all right. I work in the South Pole. I'm aware that sounds exciting, and it truly is. But it's a difficult job with taxing hours. We were sent to the middle of Antarctica with a thousand miles of snow and ice on all sides. We worked a solid seven to five and with a lack of recreation, we typically do 18-hour days. However, we do have slow satellite Wi-Fi, which is what keeps me sane during the long days. Regardless, all this wasn't the problem. The problem was the sheer atmosphere of... oppression. The whole place didn't feel right. Most of the facility is subterranean with covered heaters atop the roof and an entrance into a cement stairwell. The bunker is what you'd expect. Gray, concrete, square, with men and women's bunking areas and a few couple rooms. A large bathroom facility with shower and toilet stalls, plus three labs and a fully stocked cafeteria, all with no windows. There was also a medical bay and two rooms with couches for therapy. After the double section entrance was the rec room. It had a pool table and a bar the wall was knotty pine wood paneling, like from the 1970s. The rooms were all attached by a long, dingy hallway, including two offices with desks and chairs. Spent most of my time there. Atop the station was an observation deck, reachable with a ladder, with windows where we could see and hear the outdoors, but we usually only went up to smoke since it was nearly as cold as the outside. The whole place was poorly lit. 
fluorescent lights and a few lamps and corners, but overall, it looked like a dingy green underground cement hell. Outside is exactly what you would expect from Antarctica. Snow for hundreds of miles in all directions. If you have a fear of open water, it feels like that, except you have to walk in it. I was a little surprised as to why they invited so many on this particular expedition. There were 12 of us total, usually six would suffice, all professionals in our fields. However, the range of work each of us did was surprising. Typically, it would be a singular field of study to accomplish a common goal, but on this expedition there were several different professions. The first was an older Finnish gentleman, a medical doctor who was skilled in healing injuries in frozen climates. The next was a physicist who really was as surprised as us to be in the South Pole, for their work is often theoretical, and when in practice requires a team in and of itself. The next two were a British husband and wife team, both geologists. There were three men in their thirties for maintenance and driving specialized in sub-zero conditions and masters in any repair field. Also, there was a biologist, a young black lady who wore her hair in a bun and kept her lab coat on at all times inside. She was all work and no fun. Then there were even two therapists. Yes, two therapists. The first is what you'd expect, a middle-aged lady with blonde bangs and a clipboard, always wearing a warm smile. The other, well, he was a tall, lanky fellow. He was gaunt and his hair was jet black. Honestly, I had no idea why he would be a therapist. I myself was intimidated to even say hi to him. I never saw anyone join him in therapy, unless he specifically asked them. I usually try to avoid him. There was another man who I assumed was a cook, until I saw we had to make our own meals. He was an odd, mousy-looking fellow. He didn't speak to anyone, and when I tried, he would simply ignore me. I maintained that he would be my favorite person on this expedition since he kept 100% to himself. Me? I was the chaplain. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. There are a half a dozen professionals here and they need a chaplain? Well, I didn't think it made sense, but when I was contacted by the organization funding the trip, I didn't argue. They were offering a lot of money and in my line of work, that is a rarity. The expedition was to be six months, and we were to conduct specific experiments. I don't know what the others were assigned, but I was to do journals on the religious implications of the expedition, and provide any counsel for all the other participants on the trip, of any sect or faith. The counsel assignment I didn't have a problem with, but the journaling? That's the kind of thing college freshmen journal on in, in Theology 101. Either way, I was getting paid, so I sucked it up and spent the rest of my free time downloading movies and games to pass the long hours in between counseling. Surprisingly, a lot of people came to me for a religious discussion. I won over the maintenance guy's approval when I cracked open a beer with them and talked to Catholicism on the old rec room couch. I'm a Protestant minister, so they were a little standoffish at first. We became fast friends, and even though I didn't blame them or give confession, I think it helped ease stress to feel like they could disclose matters of faith, as well as just have fun conversation. Either way, I got along well with everyone after enough time, 
The physicist was a staunch atheist, so we played pranks on each other frequently. I'd hide his laptop out of easy reach, blaring Jesus take the wheel, and he would wake me up half the days with no church in the wind. I considered him my second best friend in the compound, even though that song did give me chills when I thought about how far away we were from civilization. My best friend was the odd man. He was always around the rec room when I was, and he never spoke. He wore an orange hoodie and jeans indoors, and always seemed like he was drinking alone at the dimly lit makeshift bar. I thought nothing of it since our schedules were all different, and I could absolutely condone drinking yourself senseless in a place like this. It was lonely most days. We did our own thing at our own stations, often eating lunch there. Frozen meals or MREs, usually. I did spend quite some time talking with the doctor. He was a Buddhist, so we spent many mornings meditating in his medical station under the buzzing fluorescent lights. He said that the place gave him an odd feeling. It was hard to be centered here in the cement brick buried in the snow. It did get to me after a while, when I was alone and the lights were quiet, I swear I could hear whispering. Not whistling. No, whispering. whispering. Yeah, whispering. The whispers. After one particular incident where I swore I heard clear words, I started wearing headphones. They helped quite a bit with filling my ears with noise and blocking out the outside world. Once a week, supplies were dropped in from the coastal base hundreds of miles away. We restocked the cigarettes, whiskey, and other non-essentials like food and water. I say that to point out whoever was paying for this was dropping serious money. I never met the main client. Rather, I was contacted through their representatives. Apparently, the man funding it was very wealthy, very driven, and very religious, and he was highly invested in this expedition. He wanted the success, but no one knew his goal with this ordeal he was funding. Also, once a week, we would go out in the Snow Rover, a giant SUV that could ride over the snow and ice. We would take samples of the ice and examine the previous dig site from the last crew. I could not imagine the crew that had come all the way out here to build the facility, but I bet they got paid crazy money. Some days, we would all go just to get out and see the sun. We couldn't leave during a blizzard. But most go days, only the necessary crew for the excavation would go. Whenever we went, we had to wear a harness attached by rope to the SUV to avoid slipping down the ice and being injured. We can only go once a week due to the outside conditions and the distance to the dig site. I mentioned both of these to say that we were alone out here, and if a plane came Monday, then we had seven days until it returned. Then was the first big shift. It was exactly two months in the base. The biologist with one maintenance man to drive and man the harnesses. They left in good spirits and remained at the site for hours. However, they returned shaken. They burst in the door while I was in the rec room with the therapist, and we immediately noticed the fear in her eyes. The lady geologist ran to the couple's room without saying a word. Her husband chased after her, calling her name. We asked what happened and noticed the biologist was crying. The other therapist entered the room like a ghost. 
and without a word, he ushered her into his office and closed the door. I like it so far. It's kind of uh, 30 Days a Night in the sense that, like, they're kind of out there. That's a good movie. In their own little... Oh, yeah. Fucking awesome. The doctor burst in and boomed. What on earth is going on? I don't know, said the first therapist. She was anxious, as was I. Where's Jack? The maintenance worker who drove the SUV. Wait, where's the car? I inquired, opening the door to the outside. I saw nothing but our flag, a long set of footprints, and miles of ice gleaming in the sunlight. We sat for what felt like hours in the rec room, all of us who didn't go on the field expedition, that is. The others were in the tall therapist's office. Panicked voices could be heard behind the door. Finally, they all exited. The geologist went to their room without saying a word. The biologist sat in one of the empty folding chairs. The therapist stood behind her, hands on the back of her seat. She had clearly been crying since she'd returned. We got there ahead of schedule. She started, gathering her composure. The dig site. We arrived at 0700 instead of 8, so we got to work early. At first, all was fine. Jack was in the SUV, minding the harnesses. I was chiseling away at a small patch of ice when I heard the others call from below. We looked at her, hanging on her every shaking word. She continued. I slid down to the base of the hole. About 30 meters down, I think they had struck a hard surface. We all dug together and pulled out a massive lockbox. I uh, immediately, we assumed it was left from the last dig, but the design was old. It looked like something from World War II. It was heavy and sealed shut. We tugged the rope to signal Jack, but there was no response. We started calling out for him, but he never called back. We couldn't see him from our vantage point, and after a solid ten minutes of screaming, we made our way up the hill using our tools. We used an extra length of cord to pull the box up. It took all three of us, but we got it up. When we reached the top, Jack was nowhere to be found. We searched the perimeter for well over an hour, but with maximum visibility, we would have seen him. We checked for holes in the ice and signs of footprints, but his earlier tracks never left the side of the SUV. We loaded the box in the back and kept searching. We noticed something then, something we absolutely should have seen already. When we climbed atop the vehicle for a better vantage point, we saw a massive single message in the snow. Run. We looked at her in disbelief, the mutual feeling of sympathy, and that I could have searched better, people tend to have. She started tearing up again. We panicked. We drove away, but none of us can operate a vehicle designed for snow and ice. We crashed into a massive pothole about a mile south of here. We left the car and walked back. The find is still there, and Jack is somewhere in that deserted wasteland. After this, she broke down in sobs and left to the dorm. Jack hadn't answered a single radio call or even made an attempt at reaching us. The dig site was an hour's drive from our base, and we were thousands of miles from any other researchers. We were essentially powerless to do anything. First things first, said the one of the other repairmen. We need to get our ride back. He suited up. Then he, the other maintenance worker, left 
on a snowmobile designed for short distance. Now, I don't know how they did it, but they managed to bring the SUV back safely in less than an hour. By now it was getting dark, and the search for Jack would be too dangerous to continue tonight. We didn't sleep that night. The odd man didn't even come to bed. He just wandered the halls drinking. I lay there listening to the music to drown out the sounds of silent sobs coming from down the hall. This concrete slab, this tomb, in the middle of a frozen dead zone. We were completely and utterly alone. The doctor remarked before bed. If Jack is still alive, he may be better off out there. The next morning, we set out. All of us except the two therapists and the odd man, who I assumed was sleeping off a hangover. We dragged the lockbox out of the vehicle and laid it in the rec room. We loaded up and decided to deal with opening it later. We searched the dig site and surrounding area until evening and turned up nothing. The message in the snow was nowhere to be found. There had been no snowfall that night. We found no tracks, no signs, no body, no anything. We returned depressed and feeling responsible for our missing companion. When we returned, however, we were greeted by an odd sight. A jet. On the snow was a ski-fitted jet, and not like the crappy junk plane that dropped us off, this was an expensive private jet. We entered the facility to the sounds of loud, booming laughter. A short, bald man with a white goatee sat in the rec room with the shrinks. He was smoking a cigar and wore a very nice suit. Two very large men in sunglasses stood on either side of the door. We were slightly stunned. Well, the man said in a hard southern drawl, turning to us. If it ain't the rest of the party, who? I was cut short. Allow me to introduce myself. He stood, extending his ringed hand. Earl. Redacted. <laughs> Pleased to meet you. Finally. I don't think I was supposed to say redacted. Yeah. I mean, it's a public story, but someone, someone said, you know, they're... I don't know that. Yeah, that was pretty stupid, actually. Yeah, it's pretty dumb. Sorry. This isn't a government document. This is a fucking story. I'm ready to no sleep, dude. Just make him say Earl. Anyway. We took turns awkwardly introducing ourselves, realizing this must be the guy in charge. He invited us into the cafeteria to have an official meeting. I'm here to talk to you all about dinosaurs. <laughs> We're gonna make some fucking dinosaurs up here, you hear me? Uh, he's pouring their liquor. Bingo, dino DNA. This was the second weird shift in the trip. He offered condolences in regards to Jack and expressed that it was no one's fault he went missing. As for that message in the snow, he said, lowering his voice, I would say this whole place tells you to run at some point. Don't let it get to you. He finally revealed his focus of the expedition, that we were to, to discover any signs of past visits man had ventured. He also expressed that he wanted to colonize the South Pole, but needed to know the psychological effects of people living here. That's why he sent two mental health associates and a minister. He pointed at me saying this, making me feel exposed and awkward. He again thanked us and sent us to bed, after the best steak dinner I've ever had prepared. This guy was serious. He flew in his personal chef to thank us for our work. 
The next morning, after a bacon and eggs breakfast, he took us into the tall therapist's office, one at a time to shoot the shit, as he so delicately put. When it was my turn, he was very respectful, a gesture I appreciate when no one knows I'm a minister, but it feels forced at times when there is a pretense. How are you, Reverend? He asked softly. Well, I replied, not sure how to answer that question in light of the past few days. Glad to hear it. He smiled at the ground. Son, I'm going to level with you. You are the most important person here. How's that? I inquire, wondering if he's flattering me or not. Well, he started, looking for the right words. This trip is more psychological research than anything. What? He cut me off. We wanted a religious figure and at least two therapists to log the mental strain on living out here. We want to build a new civilization, but we have been testing different groups in small segments of time. Why me? It was the foremost of many pressing questions. Well, he said, smiling. I'm a Methodist boy myself, but I picked you because of an article you wrote a while back. You said in the final line that you have the same philosophy as me. What's that? I inquired, as I had written a few articles in my time and wasn't sure which one he meant. To truly understand God, we must also understand his counterpart. I immediately knew the article to which he referred. It was an article I wrote after seminary on demonology in modern society. I shouted that this was an unpleasant field of research. Either way, the man had done his work on me, but I still wasn't sure what a short article on demons qualified me for a mission in the Antarctic. I left the room with Earl, and we proceeded to rejoin the others. We predominantly listened to him rant on, rather than talk amongst ourselves. We just didn't feel right. We were here, in the warmth, while this man was bellowing on and our friend was out there cold and alone. I overheard many times the biologists and geologists ask to leave. At first, their requests were simply brushed off. But by the last request, he sternly reminded them that they were under contract. They resolved themselves to their rooms after that. Earl left that night with the instruction to report our findings, if there were any. He then boarded his plane with his bodyguards and left promptly. Before bed, I swear I heard whispering from the observation deck, but when I went to see, there was nothing there. Next day, a massive blizzard rolled in. We resolved that Jack had died in the snow outside. No person could survive a sub-zero blizzard after three days. This is officially where things went bad. We decided to open the lockbox. It was sealed by metal welding all the way around. It took a little while, but the other two maintenance men used blowtorches on the chest until it finally came free. They strained to pull the lid off its container. We gathered around, close. I found myself the closest to the box. They flipped the heavy lid over, which shook black soot loose from the chest. We coughed, and when it cleared, we saw the contents. There was nothing or at least nothing important. We found a piece of string, a thimble, and salt scattered about. 
We sat there rubbing our heads and looking at each other. We discussed why this would be out there in the ice so many layers deep. We talked a little while until I noticed the physicist leaving. He was pale as a ghost, so I chased him to ask what was the matter. Hey! I shouted as I caught up to him in the dorm. You good? He stood there shaking his head. After a long pause, he responded. No. What is it? I was curious as to why he was acting so strange out of nowhere. Meanwhile, I saw the other participants walk down the hall to the cafeteria. Only I noticed that the man in the orange hoodie was nowhere to be seen. My thoughts were shaken when the physicist spoke up. Did you see the word on the lid? He asked quietly. No. I was confused. I must have missed it. Can you read Hebrew? He asked, choking back tears, it sounded. No. I replied. I studied Greek. Wait, can you? Yeah. I'm Jewish, or was. I can read well enough Hebrew, at least. His voice shook. I wish I couldn't. What did it say? Dipbook. He said as a tear rolled down his face. I had never seen him like this before, and frankly, I was a little scared. You can't buy into that. No! He shouted, cutting me off. You know as well as I do that this place is wrong. It does things to you. God, the first week I chased footsteps around the shower every morning, only to realize I was alone every single time. Listen. I placed my hand on his shoulder. We're going to be okay. I wish I could say I was telling the truth, but that box did have some sort of weird feeling about it. Dibbuk. You know Dibbuk? No. Do you know Dibbuk? Uh, it's a, yeah, it's like a Jewish for, um, demon. Oh, um, okay. And, um, and, uh, what, what was the movie? Uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is a dad, and he has, I believe, a daughter or two daughters, and one of them, uh, opens a box and bad shit starts to happen around the house and to people around the daughter and the dad and all this shit and I think this movie is famous I always forget the title so I apologize it's referenced for having Modest Yahoo in it Modest Yahoo the um, Hebrew Middle Eastern like rapper mm. he plays a, uh, a priest well I guess I would say rabbi, that comes to try and cleanse the spirit from the house, but it's like a dibbuk, it's a dibbuk, you know, it's a a Hebrew demon, you know, sealed very simply in a a box, in a chest, Um, and when you open it, you you let it loose, Mm. and that's just, you know, mayhem ensues, so I guess, I guess we're going, we're, we're going into that, we're, we're doing that, that's the, the story is taking that turn. Yeah. That night around 2 a.m., I awoke to the sounds of footsteps. They were so loud, I heard them over my headphones. I went to check around, and no one was awake beside me. I heard soft sobbing from the couple's room, but we knew better than to disturb them. They had it pretty rough right now. As I returned to my bunk, I walked by the cafeteria and caught something awful. I turned to see the most horrendous sight I have ever seen. All the chairs and tables were scattered and flipped. Food was smeared all along the walls and ceilings and utensils, and appliances were scattered about. In the center of the floor 
was a massive rusted steel cross and nailed to it was Jack. He was soaked from head to toe in blood and his eyes looked as if every vein had a burst. Barbed wire covered his arms and legs and nails were driven through his wrists and ankles. He was bald and thin. And when we made eye contact, he shook violently. Then he shrieked through spattering blood. <laughs> this just this just turned into a completely different story in like one fucking page. <laughs> in All right, one here, sentence. here it comes. What was my voice for Jack? I think it was gruff. Belfagor! Now is my time. My time. Now is my turn to lose control. I fell backward and slid on the tile. I must have been screaming my lungs out for everyone poured into the hallway, asking in confusion what was happening. I had urinated. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had urinated. I pointed to the cafeteria through tears and panicked breaths. The inside was totally normal. Nothing was out of place. No cross, no jack, no destruction. The last thing I remember was showering and opening a bottle of jack. <laughs> I had urinated. <laughs> I, I had urinated. It was only three hours later. I awoke in the rec room covered by a blanket. Jane, the therapist, was asleep on the opposite couch. She was sweet through all of this, and I'm sure she was disappointed in my lack of professionalism. I was still drunk when I stood. Everyone was still asleep, and the blizzard still blasted our compound. I wandered the hall and heard the sobbing from the couple's room again. I realized in my stupor that they may need help. I knocked softly on the door, but the crying continued uninterrupted. Before I could knock again, I had to resolve myself to the toilet. I ran and vomited into the bowl, now feeling slightly more alert. As I stood wiping my mouth, I caught the brief glimpse of a figure leaving the bathroom. It was dark and tall, but I couldn't catch any more details. I finally had enough and returned to my bunk. I fell into a restless sleep that night, but I slept nonetheless. I awoke the next, the next day to someone shaking my arm. Wake up. My vision focused to see one of the maintenance men. Power's out and people are missing. I stood groggily. He turned to the hallway where I could hear voices in the cafeteria. I saw the only other person in the room was a physicist. He was facing away towards the wall. Come on. I slurred. He didn't stir. He just laid there. I only left because I saw him breathing. I walked into the cafeteria. It was lit by emergency candles on the table, where I saw the biologist Jane, the doctor, and the two maintenance men. Counting me, this was less than half of our original group. They turned, and the other maintenance men said, well, look who it is. Oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> it's cold, dude. Well, look who it is. You gonna scare the hell out of us again? I didn't smile or disagree. I just sat beside the doctor and asked where the geologists were. They won't answer their door, Jane said, her age truly beginning to show in her tired, drawn eyes. The other therapist as well is missing. We're going to leave, chimed the biologist. As soon as the blizzard dies down, fuck their contracts. How? We're a thousand miles from the nearest base. I felt negative for saying... But I didn't want to risk certain death for a little cabin fever. Well, chimed the man who woke me. 
We have a massive sled we'll load with every tank of gas, then we just have to get within 50 miles to the nearest base to be within radio contact. We have GPS, we'll drive in shifts, and we'll take our time as to avoid pitfalls. Is this agreeable? Asked the doctor. I feel like the doctor is like me playing as the professor in Betrayal, <laughs> which is just, or, or the, uh, the priest, I guess, in betrayal as well, <laughs> is I just run around and I'm just like, I'm old! <laughs> I'm old. Everyone nodded in agreement. In that case, he continued, I suggest we spend the next few days together, hoping the missing members return, and if not, then we will beg their forgiveness in hell. I spent the day sitting in a daze. I just had no clue why we were all so distraught. We all layered up in the dark and hunkered down. We made small talk in an attempt to fill the void. The dancing candlelight played tricks on our eyes and the dark was oppressive. The six of us just sat there, just sitting, just waiting. Finally, around 1800, 6 p.m., Jane suggested we check on the geologists. We stayed close down the hallway and heard the sobbing. It was softer, but still present. Jane knocked, waited, knocked again. Then she shouted she was coming in, but the door was locked. The maintenance man began pounding his fist and threatened to break in. He took out a kerning and picked out a key. It fit the door and he slowly opened it to the bedroom. Inside was a nightmare. The first thing I noticed was the blood. It was everywhere. The walls, the bed, the ceiling, the floors. It covered the lamp and bathed the room in a deep red. On the bed was the male geologist. His eyes were wide open in shock and his mouth hung agape. His throat was torn out. His leg was chewed to the bone. His wife sat beside him with her backside to us. She turned, covered in blood herself. She was crying and chewing. She sputtered the bloody meat while sobering. Her expression turned from sorrow to one of pure, unadulterated rage. She contorted her mouth to scream, but only a hoarse gargle and bits of flesh came out. The maintenance worker closed the door and we all panicked in unison. Get the door! The doctor shouted. <laughs> we followed him to the kitchen and pulled tables in front of the door. We piled enough furniture to board that animal in her cage. We returned to the rec room. Everyone was crying and Jane was in the fetal position, shaking uncontrollably. We leave tomorrow, because I, I, can, I can't stand any of this shit. This shit fuck. I fucking hate this. This shit sucks. I fuck. Who fucking made me come here? Why am I... What the fuck is... It, fuck this. Fuck this shit. Go, what the... I hate this shit. Fuck it. I feel like I feel like you could take that and make like a parody cartoon of like fucking bullshit. A parody cartoon of a doctor set in the early 19th century like Little House on the Prairie where sure. the doctor had to travel towns miles and miles away. Um, in fact, Anton Chekhov was before a playwright. He was a doctor and he went traveling through he was. Russia. And he went town to town. But what you could do with this this character you're creating is create a show about a doctor who does how, how to do that, and then just 
each time he goes through like Rick and Morty shit with them. Oh, that would be hilarious. Yeah. And he's like, not this again. I fucking hate this shit. What are you, why are you so fucking stupid? <laughs> you dumb little bitch. You fell down the valley. You fell down the... No. No, you can't play with your donkey. You dumb little cunt. And to get out of the situations, he he, he poisons, he prescribes strong medication. <laughs> We're going to have to put her down. <laughs> but it was, it was just a low fever. <laughs> One second from we leave. We leave tomorrow! Huffed the doctor in between shutters. <clears throat> the blizzard still raged outside. I swear at times the wind was so loud I felt like it mocked me. You suck. I must have... <laughs> I must have fallen asleep at some point because a massive blast woke me. A cunt blast. <laughs> <laughs> I looked out to see others jumping to their feet. We got ourselves to the ladder and climbed to the observation deck. Outside, we saw blackness expanding, all except for a large patch of light a few meters away. Through the whiteout conditions, we can make out fire. The SUV was in flames. Gas tanks stacked around it. Atop the flames was... a person... Upon closer inspection, I could see it was naked and dancing. Oh, God. The biologist lifted her hand to her mouth. Jane! It was Jane. She was naked <laughs> and being burned by the flames. She was super naked. Her howls echoed through the dark storm. We watched as the fire consumed her body. She shrieked and screeched until she finally fell, remaining silent forever. We walked downstairs, feeling hopeless. We sat in the dark of the rec room, and no one spoke until morning. Yeah, but the last time wasn't real. The story mm -hmm. is convoluted. And it might continue. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The last time it was fake. But now people are going crazy and dying. Okay, and they're all saying all the right. same thing. Whatever. We walked, okay with it. we walked downstairs, feeling hopeless. We sat in the dark of the rec room. We're not going to talk about it? And no one spoke until morning. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the physicist was still in bed. Yeah, fuck that stuff. He I'm was, not going outside. He was trying to ignore everything and chose to redo all of his calculus one homework. <laughs> but at this point, I knew he was too far gone. <laughs> <laughs> the footsteps were loud in the unoccupied rooms. But at this point, I had given up. <laughs> Why? If I was to die here, then so be it. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> the character's Cars done. on fire. I'm seeing shit. I, and I urinated. Okay. <laughs> done. And I urinated. I gave up. <laughs> it's me, actually. I'm done. I'll leave. If you guys need me, I'll be in my room. <laughs> we huddled in blankets and coats against the wall. We sat and we cried. A candle in front of our feet was the only light source. I closed my eyes tight so not to see the dark shadow pacing the room in front of us. The next morning, the power returned. The lights were flickering, and we stood slowly in the dim, intermittent glow. I heard music playing in the showers. We all walked together and looked inside. Within was the song, Jesus Take the Wheel, being played on loop from an MP3 player. We walked into the dull gray room and saw the physicist naked, sitting on the floor in front of the iPod player. Blood appeared to be running into the drain beneath him. 
He slowly turned his head to me. He held up his left hand to his lips and hissed a long... With the other hand, he lifted his bloodied, mutilated genitals. He closed his eyes and smiled a large, toothy grin. He whispered behind closed teeth, I like this song now. God! Said the doctor, who is now the main character in my opinion. Great Scott! He slowly... Christopher Lloyd... He slowly became Christopher Lloyd. (laughs) He slowly approached the bloodied man, (laughs) attempting to keep him calm. He continued, It's okay, boy. I'm here to help. The physicist snickered again, eyes still closed and teeth still bared in a snarling grin. As the doctor got close, the man shrieked with inhuman volume and sprang forward. He tackled the doctor to the ground and sunk teeth deep into the old man's jugular. Blood ran down both the doctor's neck and the physicist's teeth. He stood, turning his violent intent at us. The doctor sputtered blood and choked for air as the brooding man crouched to leap a loud bang filled our ears. I fell to the ground in agony. The screeching in my eardrums was unbearable. Finally, it cleared and I saw the physicist now laying dead in a pool of his own blood. In his head was a circular wound that bore all the way through his skull. One of the maintenance workers was holding a smoking pistol. We were four now. Me, the biologist, and the other two maintenance workers. The rest were now all missing or dead. Rest in peace, Doctor. Although the power was on, the satellite was down, thus ruining our chances for radio and Wi-Fi. We all paced and cried and panicked for hours, until finally one of the maintenance men spoke up. Our only chance of survival is to fix that dish. We looked at him and silently knew he spoke the truth. The outside was still completely whited out from the amount of snow and wind. I'll go, spoke up the other man. We'll go together, said the first. The biologist and I knew we could not argue, for we did not go to law school. (laughs) We watched them in their coats leave into the unforgiving blizzard. We waited for what seemed like hours, searching for radio signals and Wi-Fi. Finally, it came back. We smiled for the first time in a while and prepared for the men's return. We sat and waited and waited and waited. We didn't say anything, but we knew. We knew we were the last. She fell asleep in my lap after we cried ourselves tired. Before I closed my eyes, I swear I heard the giggles of a child. (laughs) Play with me. I awoke some time later. I was utterly alone. I yelled for the biologist. I searched each and every room until I found the last thing I wanted to find. I found her in the observatory. She wrote a lovely note about wanting to see the outside world before she died. In her arms was an empty syringe that I guess is what she used to end her life. Her eyes were blank, staring into oblivion. I left her to her peace. Now, the reason I write this in my probable last moments of clarity. The reason we were brought to this frozen hell, only to die. 
the reason I'm sending out the story before I put an emergency flare gun down my mouth. I returned to the office I had been using. I was hysterical. I saw my reflection in the display mirror and noticed my eyes were totally black. This sight brought me to smash the mirror. I sliced my knuckles, which rocked me back to reality, and in my second of clarity I noticed the slip of paper that fell from the shattered pieces. It was a note with a picture attached. The note read, If you're reading this, then I hope it isn't too late. This place is not what you think. The man in charge is not a religious kook. He is much more dangerous. By now you may have found that undiscovered lockbox. In it you found some trinkets to spook you. There's probably a minister with you to comment on the materials as evil. This is their set and setting. That black dust that flew out, it wasn't dust. And it wasn't evil. God, these people don't want to colonize. Ever wonder why you're so far away from any other bases? This is a weapons testing facility. You have unknowingly been testing compounds for a private company. This particular compound is an untraceable, psychosis-inducing strain of pathogen that is meant for world leaders. The concept is to have the enemy kill itself. If you've breathed the black dust, then it is all too late. All you can do is attempt to get this message out, but do not trust the maintenance men and do not trust the tall therapist. They are working for Earl. They will disappear without a trace shortly after his visit. They've logged your behaviors, so even if the blizzard, which is what I assume you're already in, subsides, you'll be found and killed if you escape. I'm so sorry. I've lost my entire team. I wish you never would have come. I'm sorry. Dave. The picture was attached with what I assume was the previous team. In red ink, a, a man was circled and labeled me. In the picture, it was a mousy man in an orange hoodie and jeans. Well, and that's the end. So the guy in the orange... I mean, it totally could be a part two. The guy in the orange was... I don't think so. That's kind of the twist. Well, no. The twist I... is it's a weapon testing and that they were breathing in chemicals and they were testing sanity. I think... Totally, I... totally singular story. I think, I think a second part would explore maybe her escape from the facility and overcoming... Um, through faith, you know, maybe even put that religious spin on it. His. Through his, through his faith, yeah. you know. Huh. He, he gets through the psychological side effect from the weapon and, and then somehow is able to find a way to escape. Let's give it a quick look-see. You ever seen those movies, oh, what, they're, what they're called? A team, like, of people and a girl go, like, spelunking in a cave. So, uh, the Descent? The Descent. You ever seen that? Yeah, the original is a is a group of girls, and the sequel is 
uh, the sole survivor of the first movie being sent back down with a security team mm-hmm. and like police. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the girl gets really, out by really herself. Fan- fantastic, fantastic two movies. I mean, she gets out, and you wouldn't think you wouldn't think she could get out, but yeah, maybe this could be anything significant at the very end of what they revealed about the picture. I don't think there's a part two. I think that's it. Wow. Um, what what were you saying? Uh, anything significant at the end revealed with the last? Yeah, the 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 picture is the guy in the orange hoodie that went missing at the beginning of the expedition. The one who never talked. He, oh. They just didn't find him. Remember? Oh wow! Yeah, 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 yeah. They just assumed whoever wasn't there in that room at the end was either missing or dead, and the orange, the orange hooded guy never talked to, to anyone for one reason or another, and just disappeared. First one to disappear. Yeah. I don't think first. I think, I think he knew when to get out. Or when to not draw attention and really test himself. He knows that, you know, he's going to die. But if he, uh, you know, it's, it's probable that someone who's been set up to the same cycle with new people would just supply when he needs to supply. If, if he knows he's trapped there. Yeah. You know? And I could see why he doesn't talk to anyone. He doesn't want anyone to find out, you know, the same thing. Sure. Maybe it was a ghost. Who knows? Maybe it was maybe, all right at the Maybe end. it wasn't a person. Maybe it was a ghost. Who knows? Who fucking knows, man? It's a weapons testing facility. That's enough of a twist for me, personally. I'm okay with that twist. That twist is actually better than Dybbuk. I like that it's kind of a mockery of religion. That's fun. That's fun. <laughs> but, um... I guess, uh... I guess it's just pretty straight-laced. It's pretty simple. It's pretty, um... Once and done. What did you think? Yeah, once and done. Decent read, decent length. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Not really. Um, I just think that when we play Betrayal later later tonight with with Frowns, it's going to be hard not to um, not to be Doc. Yeah. Not to be Doc. That's 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 my takeaway. Is uh you know. You're in a shitty situation like that. You you want to be the Doc. (laughs) <laughs> you want to be the old man who sure, takes sure. who takes charge. Doesn't <laughs> <laughs> make that spin off. Who takes uh, who takes you know the the odd situations, takes them by the balls, <laughs> and uh, and kills and kills when needs to kill. Anyway, that's all I got. <laughs> I don't fucking uh, fuck this. I fucking hate this shit. <laughs> Why the fuck am I here? Fuck you. I'll sing no, trash. We get a move on. <laughs> like um, John Goodman in that in that movie. <laughs> oh, play, brother, where are they? Oh no, he voices <laughs> the guy in the movie, the lawyer. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck, I'm, I'm ending this. You're not allowed to come on my show anymore. <laughs> Last night.